Good morning, everybody. Well, if your Bibles are open to John chapter 15, I will tell you that we're going to just look at verses 12 and 13 today. By God's grace, next Sunday, we'll look at 14 to 17. And then after that, sandwiched after Steve Dobb preaches, I will finish John chapter 15 on the last Sunday of September as we look at how we should relate to the world. But let's get started today because here we are. I don't know if you realize this, but we are here in another September. It is September of 2021. And maybe for many of you, you don't realize it, but March of 2020 can seem maybe very far away right now, doesn't it? But here we are, 18 or so months, 20 months into this global pandemic, and we are still right in the middle of it all. Sometimes we get distracted by slightly different things, but we still have words like pandemic, pivot. They're still seared in our minds along with things like masks and lockdowns. We still hear in newspapers and on television things like community spread and the fact that even some of you and where you chose to sit, you're always going to probably be aware for the rest of our lives of this thing called physical distancing. Then add to our current stresses, vaccines. Should we get them? Should we not get them? Should we still wear a mask even if you're vaccinated or not? Should we get a booster or not? Who do we trust? Do we trust God? Do we trust our government? Do we trust the culture? And then how should we act? Now, what I want to do is bring all of that current chaos into this passage about love. We are studying the Gospel of John. This series I've titled Conversations with Christ because this is the gospel of Jesus speaking to people or to groups of people or crowds. And really what I want to do over three weeks in September is focus on this idea, Christ's love for us commands our love toward each other. As we begin the fall season of 2021, as we have come together here at Calvary Baptist Church in St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada, both in per person and for those of you that are watching online, you've probably already noticed this is the first Sunday of the month. And so you've been given something else that reminds us that we're in a pandemic, which is this self-contained packet of a wafer. I won't even call it bread. I'll call it a wafer and some sort of juice. I don't even know if I want to call it grape juice, but it's some sort of juice. And we have gathered together to attempt, even in the midst of this pandemic, to celebrate and remember something. We're here as a people to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yes, we can do so in a COVID world. We do this with an election for our nation in just about two weeks from now. We do this with the news of vaccine passports, the threat of fourth waves. School is about to restart and universities and community colleges are about to reopen. And we have all kinds of unknowns over the next month for kids under 12. And how will they react? And how will all the teachers and professors do this? Is the vaccine truly safe for those that are 12 and up? And then we have all the whatabouts, the how comes and the what nows are everywhere in our lives. And yet here we are again as a church gathering. 
I believe we have tried every bit in ourselves to give each other grace. We've tried to example being good citizens to our country and our fellow citizens. We're trying to obey God above all else. We're trying to protect the weak and the vulnerable while still being a safe place for any and all people. And yet none of us can deny this. We are surrounded by uncertainty. We are surrounded by mistrust. We've experienced and are surrounded by things like defensiveness and fear. We face our own struggles, and then we hear about the struggles of all those around the world. And then add to that the social media platforms that we have, and if I dare say and be a bit bold, that toxic cesspool of hate and conspiracy theories and labeling anyone who doesn't hold your point of view as someone that is the enemy. And what is the result of all of this? It's hurting people who are all too often hurting people. This is our reality. Marriage is hard, isn't it? Family can be stressful. Goodness gracious, even going to a movie now can become a fight about distancing or masks. Going to a restaurant has been turned into a right of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. And what about church? What about Christians? Has or is church a safe place? Really? We're hurting and searching and confused people are allowed to come together and we can experience love and grace and mercy where we can actually see and experience patience and long-suffering and gentleness. Is the church, is this church a place for broken people to be honest and vulnerable? Where sinners can sing of a great Savior who has now declared them to be amazing saints. How? How are we, you and I, us, going to observe communion here in September of 2021, navigating the crazy times of our lives and navigating the world that we live in to be true to God's Word, all the while obeying God's Word and actually being Christians while we do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer, of course, is pretty simple. I quote my grandfather again who said, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. It's look to Jesus. That's what you and I have to do. What is the gospel of John really about? It's it's 21 chapters of look to Jesus. It's a biopic of look to Jesus. John the apostle is moved. He writes 21 chapters where he carefully chooses seven amazing signs mixed with seven fantastic I am statements of Jesus. He intersperses them within these conversations of Jesus talking with people, people like you and like me, regular people. Jesus will talk to sinners and saints. He'll talk to outcasts and marginalized, and he'll talk to religious elite whether it's his mother Jesus, sorry, whether it's his mother Mary or an unnamed woman at the well, whether it's a Pharisee named Nazareth, or sorry, Nicodemus, or a man born blind. He speaks to intimate friends like Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. He speaks to complete strangers like the man who was paralyzed for 30 odd years by that pool in Bethesda who were superstitious and 
worn out and tired and exhausted from just hurting. There are crowds, people, groups, believers and naysayers. But then, really, this gospel moves towards John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, where really John the Apostle is going to include himself because really then the vast majority of this book converses around this conversation between Jesus and 11 ordinary guys. Twelve in all, one would leave, and that's where Jesus really wants these 11 disciples, and John wants you and I, his audience, as we read this gospel, as Jennifer read our passage, all the way to his purpose statement, which is John chapter 20. And wink, wink, I got to read it again. Jesus did many other signs besides these seven in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, John says, at the end of his gospel. And here's why I wrote them, that you, you and I, us together, may believe something. What are we to believe? That Jesus is the Christ. Not that Jesus is an option. Not that Jesus is a part of the religious buffet of philosophies and ideas. No, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's what happens if you will believe that, that by believing you can have life in his name. You can have life in his name in the middle of a global pandemic with all of its uncertainty. You can have life in his name, young people, as you're trying to navigate all of the choices you have to at university and starting your careers. You can have life in his name for those of you that are dating, getting engaged, or are married, or have experienced hurt in marriage, or relationships, or families. You can have life in his name. And think about these 11 guys, these 11 fellows that we call disciples. Have you ever really stopped to think that these 11 guys are not in any way how we would put a team together? Most of them were fishermen. When I travel, I always tell people that Newfoundlanders would have made great disciples. There's a tax collector who's considered a traitor. And the irony is there's a tax collector who's a traitor, and he's partnered up with a guy who was a zealot whose mission in life was to kill traitors. And then, of course, there's Judas, as we learned last week. Even though you and I have the Scriptures and we know what Judas was, these 11 guys didn't. This was just another religious guy. He fit the bill. He talked the talk. He walked the walk. Goodness, he was so liked and respected, they trusted him with the money. Nobody thought he was a thief. You and I know that after the fact. In the real time, this was another guy. And Jesus had called all 12 of them. He cared for them and taught them. He even empowered the 11 of them and protected them. Jesus has shown them things, rescued them, rebuked them, walked them through their confusion and their doubts and their pride. He walked them through their lack of faith and their lack of understanding. And yet, John 15, verses 12 and 13 says that Jesus loved them. Back two chapters in chapter 13, Jesus starts their upper room meal where we get our communion by washing their feet. This is the man that they watched in a boat look in a storm like Hurricane Ida and go, enough, and it just stopped. This is the man who had said, Lazarus, come forth, who had been dead for four days. 
and he literally was a mummy. He walked out and they had to, he had to ask people to take the bandages off him. This was the power of the man, but yet this was a man that mothers brought their children to so that he could bless them. This was a man who lepers were not too embarrassed or ashamed to go before and say, heal me. And now this is the God-man who gets up and picks up a bowl with water in it and he washes their feet and wipes their dusty, dirty feet in his own garment. He's told them about Judas and that Judas would betray him, even though they don't get it. He told them that he was leaving them and that they are weaker than they think. Remember, he told Peter that he would deny him. But look again at John chapter 14 and verse 1. After saying, Judas will betray me. After saying, I'm going to leave you. After saying, you're weaker than you think you are. And Peter's going to lead the way by denying me three times. He opens his discourse with, but let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why could he say this? Because Jesus told them this over and over again as he comforted them and assured them. And even though we started chapter 15 a few weeks ago, really all of John chapter 15 can be broken down like this, all right? If you're taking notes, in 1 to 11, it's Jesus explains his love for the disciples. In verses 12 to 17, which Jen read for us, you actually see Jesus explaining the disciples' love for each other. And at the end of September, Lord willing, when we get to look at verses 18 to 21, we're going to learn how Jesus shows the disciples how they're going to love a world that will hate them back. So this is really a love chapter. This is Jesus' love chapter. Paul will write 1 Corinthians 13, which is the church's love chapter. But this is Jesus' love chapter. Ultimately, though, I don't think we can unpack what it means to love each other in a pandemic world until we look and understand at how Jesus loves us. The reason I believe at the core of my very being that churches have not reacted as well as we'd like through this pandemic with all of the gray matter that we're dealing with, all of the individual liberties and rights and all of the things that we're trying to navigate, it's because ultimately it's not because we lack love, it's because we don't understand it because you cannot believe at how amazing God's love is for you. And I would submit to you that if you really understand how loved you are by God, it will actually flow out of you how to love other people. Look again back at John chapter 15, verse 9. What did Jesus tell them? He says this amazing verse, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And remember, I tried to challenge you and get you to own this and rejoice in it and wear it like a warm comforter every day of your life. God, Jesus didn't say, I love you. He said, I love you the way God loves me. Remember last week I reminded you, so often we think of Jesus' love in terms of grace and mercy for sinners, which is true. But how does God the Father love God the Son? He doesn't have to extend God the Son mercy or grace. Rather, He delights in His Son. 
He loves, he, he is passionate for his son. They have an intimacy that is unexplainable. And since we're going to observe the Lord's table at the end of this sermon, I think it's helpful for us to really consider what it is we're doing. Because I'm a little nervous that we are dangerously close to treating communion like another thing we do at church. And one of the reasons is because we've lost our view. Now, let me say this again. We've left our view of the love of God. When we do communion, we are celebrating the love of God. But in celebrating it, it's a communal act. It's not individualistic. It's not you and God and nobody else. It's everybody here who is a Christian. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God is what the old uh, song says. And as we prepare our hearts to do communion, I want you to look again at verses 12 and 13. Listen to these words. Jesus looks at these 11 and he says, this is my commandment. Here's what it is. That you, all 11 of you, that you, everybody here, Calvary Baptist, that you, everybody viewing online, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. And then Jesus backs that up. He goes, listen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I can't wait to get to this next week because I am passionate about friendship, and I think that's a pandemic in our culture. We lack friends. We lack an understanding of friendship. But take a moment, stare at these words. If you've got a Bible or your phone or tablet is open, look at those words. Apply them to you. What jumps out at you? What stands out at you? What stands out at you about God, about Jesus, about you? Jesus tells us that love is actually a command. Some commentators have said it's the 11th commandment. That after the 10 comes this one. But Jesus said in Matthew that it's the greatest commandment. Do you remember in Matthew 22 when the Sadducees, the religious empowered people at the time, took their best swipe at Jesus and couldn't trip him up? Then the Pharisees saw it was their opportunity and they found their best lawyer to go. And listen to these words. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law, and all of the prophets. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's summarizing, he's saying, your love of God will fuel your love of others. And your love of God and your love of others will actually change that world. It amazes me 
that we as Christians have somehow stopped loving each other and we have started gathering in churches, looking in the cameras and yelling out at a hurting, dying, desperate world who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Why don't you guys behave better? If you want to know how foolish that is, go to a funeral and yell at the person in the casket. What happens? Nothing. Do you know what's going to change our world? Not yelling and screaming at them, but you and I loving God, being amazed by God, which means we love each other, and then we go show that world the love of God. And they might even hate us, which we'll learn at the end of the month. But you know what? They will be curious about us. My favorite quote from church history is Pliny the Younger, who was sent to arrest Christians and kill them. And he writes back to Caesar and he tells them about their services as they hid in the woods. And at the very end of it, he says, Oh, Caesar, I don't know what to tell you about these ones called Christians, but I know this, they die well. I love you because God loves us. And in 2021, as we enter the fall, and all of the confusion and chaos, I want you to realize, I don't think God is going to ask us to die well this fall. But I know this Bible asks us to love well. Starting in here. And you won't do it if you don't firmly know and understand and believe how God is. In other words, you'll never love and obey. You'll never be godly in your strength You'll never clean yourself up or motivate yourself. And even if you try, it will feel burdensome and exhausting. And you'll just end up one of two ways. Bitter and tired and wanting to quit. And just to give in to all of your baser wants. Or worse, you'll be self-righteous and entitled and self-confidence. You'll live like, you'll live life feeling like you're owed something. You'll know this because you'll sense an anger, a lack of being thankful, and a complaining spirit. Richard Phillips explains John 15, 12, and 13 like this. There are far too many Christians who speak casually about the imitation of Christ. Some have even foolishly attempted to gain their way to heaven by being like Jesus. An example of this emphasis is the once popular WWJD. As if by putting on a bracelet, you would now instantly be godly. It boiled the Christian faith down to this question. What would Jesus do? The idea is that all we have to do in any situation is to know what Jesus would do and then do it ourselves. I love this, he writes. But the problem with this approach is that it fails to recognize that Jesus is unique both in his person and in his saving mission. In most situations, Jesus would do what we cannot do. And in some cases, Jesus would do what we should not do. The most important example is how Jesus responds to the sins of his people, laying down his uniquely perfect life as the once-for-all sacrifice to atone for sin. 
And for this reason, the very heart of the Christian faith is what Jesus did for us. And precisely because we could never do it for ourselves. And you need to realize this this morning. We are not saved by doing what Jesus did, but by trusting what Jesus did. That's how you're a Christian. And certainly, Christians are commanded to follow and imitate Christ. I'm going to quote it, Ephesians 5 verse 1. Be imitators of God. But the Bible does not tell us to do what Jesus did. Look at our passage. He commanded his disciples to do as he did. And this is above all true when it comes to Jesus' love. Oh, this morning that you and I, that we, we would understand what it means to be loved by him with so great a redeeming love. Amazing love. We are to love others in a way that reflects his matchless grace. Jesus emphasized this truth to his disciples. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And as we start our journey of love, we need to see that it's so much deeper than the world's definition. The Beatles tried to sum it up. All we need is love. Let me ask you to go read the lyrics. It's the most confusing and depressing set of lyrics you're ever going to read. For starters, they say all you need is love about 9,000 times. The problem is they never tell you what love is. They never tell you what it is. They never tell you really what it means. And so we're all left with all we need is love. Okay. So number one this morning, as we head our way to communion, I want you to see the sacrificial love of Jesus. See how Jesus sacrificed for you. This is the fundamental principle that every Christian, you need to think about this. From the youngest of you to the oldest, you need to personalize the very depths of the love of Christ. The greatest example of the depth of love is God showing us his son. Jesus modeled love when he laid down his life. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5? Paul would take it to a much higher level. Jesus says, I will call you friends. No greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. But Paul said that while we were yet sinners, we were enemies of God, not friends of God. We were his enemies, and yet he still loved us and gave himself for us. But second, he modeled for us. Remember, John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. If all we need is love, we need to know what it is. Here's what it is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What's the result? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And yet, we're offended so easily. We quit so quickly. We rehearse all of the bad and never remind ourselves of the sacrificial love of Jesus. In only 16 or 17 hours from this passage, Jesus is going to suffer the most horrific death. He will hang for our sin. And we are called to emulate this love. We must be prepared for a possible future in which we suffer and surrender our lives as many martyrs have done. Church father Tertullian 
wrote to the Roman authorities in Carthage, we multiply whatever, whatever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. That was his attitude. Jesus is going to lay down his life for these 11 men. And Jesus did this for you and me. Jesus loved us so much. Listen to me now. He loved us so much that he gave up his rights. He didn't demand them. He gave up his throne. But more than that, he actually laid down his rights as a holy God. Paul said, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and women and being found in human form. He, God, the one who could stop a storm, the one who could raise the dead, the one who could give sight to the blind, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what's the result? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And Christians, Calvary Baptists, know this for this fall. We don't need to go and convince St. John's to bow down to our opinions, our views, our political ideas, or our rights. We need to show them the love of God so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter if we get this city to agree with us if they don't know Jesus. Dane Ortland reminds us, Jesus didn't just die for us. He walked through our death for us. He didn't simply die. He was condemned. He didn't endure simply death. He endured hell for us. He wasn't deserving. Jesus absorbed our death, our sin, our pain, all of it to give us his love. And he did it because he is love. He lavishes his mercy. His grace is new every day. And that, and only that, gives us value. Young people, this is where your purpose is. It gives you hope and rest. It gives you peace and joy. It gives us a perspective on life and all of the confusion. It calms us when we face questions and doubts. It protects us when we are hurt and experience the relationship pains of life. And we all face it in this life. This is the heart of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's his heart. Then Jesus rises from the dead. He goes to the Father who then sends his spirit. His spirit is poured into our souls so that we can know the love of Jesus and we can experience the love of Jesus and then we can display or share the love of Jesus. Now listen to me. The love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. That's what communion should signify. Not you and Jesus. You, Jesus, and us. The love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. And wait, there's more. Look at verse 13 because we see the intimate love of Christ. There's not just the sacrificial love, but now there's the intimate love of Christ. 
Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Next week, as I said, Lord willing, I want to really unpack this whole friendship of Jesus and what it means. But to set that up, I want you to realize how important the Lord's table is more firmly and appreciate verse 13. I want you to imagine it through the lens of Romans 5. Most people know Romans 5, 8, right? But God showed his love or demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners. But let's read it in its full context. Notice what Paul says back in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And one will scarcely die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what happens because of this? Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more. Shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, Christ loved us and reconciled us to God by his death, much more, now that we are reconciled, now that we are the friends of God, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What jumps out at you? Over and over again, Paul wants you to personalize this to you. It's personal. It's intimate. It's not generic. It's specific. You have to do more than personalize it. You've got to own it. You've got to admit that this is you. You've got to cry out, this is me. Did you notice the sequence in verse 6? While we were still weak, guilty, I'm weak, I'm tired. I'm easily afraid. I'm frustrated. I struggle. But Christ died for that. While I was still a sinner, guilty, I lose my temper. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I seek pleasure in the easy way out. But while I was still his enemy, he reconciled me to God. And while I was still his enemy, verse 10, he reconciled me to God Jesus loves us so much. God loves us so much. It's not a halfway or a half-hearted love. It's not a moody love. It's not an earned-based love. Think about it. God loves us as weak sinners who are enemies of all he is. And still, Christ comes to earth and to live for us and die for us and rise again for us and now lives for us, all for God's glory and our benefit. And that is why young people, young adults, listen to me, in this chaotic, confusing, there is no truth culture, you can stop fighting if this is true. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to justify yourself and find five other people just like you and that's the only place you'll ever be safe and everywhere else is not safe. You don't have to hide. You don't have to define yourself. 
You don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to find a place in this world. Satan doesn't love you. He wants to destroy you. The world doesn't love you. The world lies. The world is moody and changes and accepts you one day only to reject you to the next. You don't have to earn God's favor like you earn the favor of the world. Not with Jesus, in Christ. It's a sacrificial ultimate intimate love it's the ultimate relationship it's safe and it's focused and it's once for all paul said to the corinthians for christ's love compels us why since we have reached this conclusion if christ died for all and all have died then he died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So men and women, are you here this morning and you're running from God? Stop. And even though some of us will smile and go to church, and many of you here were born into church and you're as religious as anybody else that you know. But if you will look to the sacrificial and intimate love of God, you will find meaning here. And when we run to the world and when we run to money and pleasure and stuff to find meanings, when we played games with God, He still looked down on us through Jesus Christ and loved you. You don't have to be afraid. That's why Paul told the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And no, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he says, now the life I live in this body in September 5th of 2021 in St. John's, Newfoundland, I live by faith, not in myself, not in my church, not in my goodness, not in my whatever. I live by faith in the Son of God. And what's the basis of that? Who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he says, I can't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, these verses scream out, the love of God has no limits, no end point. You can't exhaust the love of God. God never cuts us off, and Jesus died to prove it. Which, just as we come to the table of the Lord, I want you to realize, God's love is as, is, is as expensive as God himself Now, I want you to think about that. If God didn't turn his back on you when you were still weak sinners, how could God turn his back on you now that we're called friends? We're called his children. Romans says we're joint heirs with Christ. Timothy says we're ambassadors. Acts says we're witnesses. Corinthians says we're stewards. And Revelation says we are the family of God. And so, this sacrificial, intimate love of Christ is a purposeful love. There's a reason he loves you like this. Jesus loves us for a reason. He loves us as an outcome Jesus modeled it to us. His love was active, his love pursued, and his love is always. In a sense, the one for whom a person 
would give his life is by definition his friend. Christian love, therefore, proceeds from the recognition of the love of God in the life-giving death of his son. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has made for us alive. Even though we were dead, you are saved by grace. That's what gives verse 8 and 9 so much power. You are saved by grace, not by your works, not by your church, not by your family. It's by grace. It's a gift from God. But it was for a reason. We are his workmanship, his creation, his poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been loved and forgiven and changed and empowered for a purpose. We've been given a message and a mission. And it's not to yell at that world. It's to beg them to know the God who loves them. And we do that by how we love each other. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1, as dearly loved children, and walk in love, as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. Watch this, a sacrificial and fragrant, intimate offering to God. It has purpose. So let me ask you this as we come to communion. Honestly, do you see and feel the love of God for you? Or are you trying to find love? Or are you trying to make yourself lovable? Are you scared of love? Are you bearing your burdens and wounds and your lack of trust? Now, look around you. Will you apply this kind of love to everybody else here? Do we want this type of love to be known and felt by everyone? Think of those who are not here. Think of the population of St. John's. St. John's and the surrounding area is 250,000 people. I've been studying this population now for seven years, and as near as I can tell, about 248,000 of them don't know Jesus. And before they're ever going to believe that Jesus loves them, we have to show them that we believe Jesus loves us by how we treat each other. I want you to think of your family your friends, your co-workers, your fellow students, your parents, your siblings. Think about your broken relationships, your scarred past. I want you to think of the person who betrayed you or hurt you or left you or abandoned you. You are never going to love them until you believe that God loves you. Because that's next level stuff. Romans chapter 12 tells us to love our enemies. But as we come to the table of the Lord, try to imagine this time of communion and what it would have been like the night that Jesus put it in place. This community loves, this band of 11 loves, and they love in those complete three stages 
Love between the Father and the Son leads to love between Jesus and the disciples, and now it's love for each other. Grant Osborne reminds us our relationship with each other grows out of the eternal relationship of the three members of the Godhead. At every case, in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a love between a husband and a wife. In 1 Peter, it's between parents and children. In Ephesians, it's between slaves and masters. In Romans, it's between Christian and government. In 1 Peter, we are called, we cannot truly know the love of Christ without loving one another. Love cannot be abstract, but must be concrete and lived out in daily lives. These guys didn't just have communion where we all do this, we look and maintain our own little posture of doing this and going, it's me and God. No, the Lord's table was a meal where men talked to each other and had intimate conversation and they shared life and they said, pass me this and pass me that. And as they were doing life, it was in that that Jesus said, take this bread, let me give thanks. In fact, this was so popular that it actually started for 30 years, what was called a love feast, where the early church would get together and they actually had a meal, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, slave, free, didn't matter who you were. They came together and they ate together and they laughed and they shared and they joyfully did it. And out of that came communion. But 30 years later, they were already clicked off They were already the rich with the rich, the poor with the poor, to the point where by the second century they had to forbid love feasts. So what I want to ask you, church, what if we knew the love of God to a point where we could bring back even just community in communion? Don't just be you, yourself, and I. Be you in Christ and us. This is a celebration of the sacrificial, intimate, purposeful love of Christ.